And the, the big problem we've got at the moment is that over the last sort of 30, 40 years, we've seen the wave climate increasing by about 0.4% per year on average, which isn't a lot. But when you accumulate that up, you're looking at 30, 40% increases in the overall wave energy in our oceans compared with when mid 19th, 19th century. When they break, they unleash a huge amount of power. It's very difficult or very unadvisable in many ways to try to stop the crest of a, a wave. It can be moving quite fast and it contains a lot of energy. So what re natural reefs do and what we're trying to do is uh, in trying to you know, effectively simulate natural reefs. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we talk with Dr. William Bateman, founder and CEO of CSAL, Growing Living Reefs for Coastal Protection. Welcome, Dr. Bateman. Thank you, Vidya, for inviting us to Mindful Business. One of the changes that is very apparent in the present global warming and the climate change that we are experiencing is the disappearance of our beaches. How quickly, when you go to your favorite beach and two years later, you can see that the coastal lines have been washed away, they've receded. Do you have some statistics or some numbers for us? From the work that we've done, we think about 51% of all beaches are actually receding. I mean, to counter that, you've got about 30% of beaches that are actually growing in size. The remainder, sort of 19% odd, are just not really moving. There has been a notable shift in the last 10, maybe 20 years. Normally, you would expect the number of beaches sort of growing and receding to be more or less in balance. Due to climate change, there's been quite a big shift. So we're seeing significantly more beaches eroding, exactly as you explained. So when they erode from one location, when all the sand goes from one location, does it just sink to the bottom of the ocean or just move to another shore? Most of the sand that you see on beaches is constantly in motion. So normally it is sort of, I wouldn't say rolling, but it's effectively sort of drifting very slowly up the coastline. And that's an ongoing process that's been you know, happening for years. What happens when people put obstructions into the sea um, say, for example, they build a pier or harbour, they can deflect sand that would otherwise have travelled up, you know, to further out into deeper water. And then the, the other way you can lose sand is, is through storms, because storms can come in and rip away sand. And if you get strong enough currents, those currents can again take the sand into deep water where it's lost. The way to think about this is sort of rivers, erosion on the shore, you know, big pebbles being broken up into small pebbles is all providing that sort of material. Um, a majority of, of sediment actually comes down the river's particularly things like the Amazon River. Those are all providing a source of material for our beaches. You've then got the deep ocean is effectively like a sink. The challenge is to try to avoid that sediment from going too far out offshore so it's lost forever, is to keep it close to the shore. And then in those situations, and you know, and there's many islands and many case studies looking at this, where you have, for example, the Maldives, you may find the sand actually just moves, you know, the beach one year maybe more prominent on the north face and then another year it may be on the more prominent on the southern face or on the eastern face and the sand is you know routinely just kind of going on a trip around the island the problem though is climate change bigger waves are upsetting those patterns and the, the big problem we've got at the moment is that since over the last sort of 30 40 years we've seen the wave climate increasing by about 0.4 percent per year on average which isn't a lot but when you accumulate that up 
you're looking at 30, 40% increases in the overall wave energy in our oceans compared with when mid 19th century. And the result of that is it's changing a lot of things. Now, what's interesting is we're only starting to see the real effects of that in the last 10, 15 years. So where I've been in working in Mexico, they used to have beaches which were 30, 40 meters wide, and they're now two meters. Wow. They've lost a substantial amount of sand in literally 10 years. So the climate change with the hurricanes and changes in where rain falls more now as against, you know, where they used to fall. So these things change how the storms change the waves, the waves change what is eroded from the sand. And that is the cycle that we are talking about. Yes. And you've actually raised a very good point that I hadn't thought about. I mean, the, you know, the changing rainfall patterns will also change the amount of erosion of the land and the in amount of sediment it actually adds into the system. You, know, you would assume that maybe it would provide more sediment, but it's, it's not necessarily the case. If the rivers are swollen and they're running very fast, they can take sediment far out into the sea when they eventually meet the sea. Whereas perhaps historically, it would have been much more gentle deposition of sand closer to the shore. As these beaches erode, we have a favorite beach in Indiana Dunes. And the spot, the sand literally was carved out. They had to build steps coming down from the sandbank to the beach, which was a few years back, was a gradual slope. Yeah. And they had to bring in humongous boulders to prop up the remaining sand, sand wall, shall we say. That's a common feature. That's been repeated around the world. I mean, I've just come back from Israel and they've got 45 kilometers of coastline where the, you know, they've got big cliffs, I mean, 10, 20 meters high that are just descending into the ocean through the erosion that you talk about. And it's, it's fairly simple to think about, you know, when you get larger waves, they come towards the shore, they crash onto the shore. When they break, they unleash a huge amount of power. It's very difficult or very unadvisable in many ways to try to stop the crest of a, a wave. It can be moving quite fast and it contains a lot of energy. So what re natural reefs do and what we're trying to do is uh, in trying to repl you know, effectively simulate natural reefs is they, by being out at sea, they're creating, you know, they're a bulge underneath the under the water and as those waves come in the energy beneath those waves gets channeled up towards the surface which causes those waves to steepen and destabilize and then break and if you can do that you know the crest of that wave is breaking onto the water it effectively destroys itself so by the time it then gets to the shore it do all that much damage and now the mistake that a lot of people make when they think about coastal protection is they as you say they go out and put these large boulders in now you can put the boulders along the, the shore and that's almost like a last ditch attempt in you know, a defense against those waves because when those waves come in they're going to just smash against those boulders so what a lot of people now do is they put breakwaters further out to sea again those are you know they by putting them out to sea you are you know those breaking waves you, you are no longer you know anywhere near to the land and you hope then behind these these breakwaters you'll see a build up of sand which is typically what happens but what's often the mistake is that they build these structures so they go right through the surface and actually cut off all of the waves that are trying to reach the shore. And smaller waves very often are actually are good. Not only do they help to circulate the water, but actually when you see smaller waves coming up to a beach and they break, they actually push sand onto the shore. So they actually help to build up the, I wouldn't say build up sand dunes, but they certainly build up some of the, the banks of sand on your beach. So what would be a good solution for this beach, say? 
that we are talking about? It's often a combination. If you've got really bad erosion already and you are, you know, say there's a building or sacred site or something, imminent danger, then you do need to actually reinforce the shore directly. Otherwise, what we're promoting are much more softer solutions. So you try to build something very similar to a coral reef, sort of 100, maybe 200 meters off from shore, and you affect a change in that wave climate before those waves reach the shore. Because once upon a time, those shores were, were perfectly okay. You know, the waves were in harmony with the existing shoreline. All that's changed is that we've just got more intense waves and we need to dampen those waves and get get back to where we were. I mean, the only thing I would add to that, by the way, is that some shorelines have always been eroding. I mean, I don't know if you've been to London or so to England, but the White Cliffs of Dover, which are you know quite famous on on the southern coast, they remain white because of constant erosion. Yeah, you know, so that's just a given. You know, that's mirrored in many other places in the world, and there are equally there are places where you know the beaches have been getting bigger and they've been effectively accumulating sand for, for a very long time. We need to be doing now is trying to just take off the slightly aggressive effects of the increased wave, wave um, increased intensity of the bigger waves due to climate change. So we have seen the coastal erosions happening at a faster scale than in history. What is your solution? We seek to mimic natural coral reefs. What are coral reefs? Coral reefs are, it's hard to describe, they're sort of kind of like a half animal, half plant. They're actually live, but they have algae growing within them, which is, is the plant element of them. And corals are, you know, there's a whole range, you know, it's a bit like the animal kingdom. There's a whole variety of different corals. Everything from very hard sort of brain corals to, I think what they're called, sort of staghorn corals, which grow quite quickly, but look a little bit like the horns of a, of a reindeer and everything in between. What people often don't realise is there are warm water corals, there are also cold water corals. So there are corals around the UK, which are in, in colder waters. And, but we more often think about the corals around Australia in the Great Barrier Reef. You know, they, those are you know, stunning and incredible habitat for fish and marine life. Collectively, corals are excruciatingly, well, that's probably not the right word, but corals are extremely important for the life that we have. So they are responsible for providing a habitat for about 25% of all marine life. They're either born in or live in corals. It's estimated that there are around about a billion people, a billion people's livelihoods are directly dependent on corals. And there are about 200 million, we estimate, of people who are directly protected by corals from you know, larger waves. I've mentioned the Maldive Islands a couple of times, but you know, large stretches of the Yucatan or Quintana Roo coastline are similarly protected in that way and in many ways we have taken we treat corals a bit like air you know we all breathe air we see it as a something that's just there and we take it for granted and corals have been quietly providing an awful lot of sort of um, services to mankind and we've just taken them for granted and sadly Without a significant change in the way that we are operating this world, we are likely to see a, you know, about 90-95% of all corals killed off in the next uh, 20 to 30 years. Our family was visiting Hawaii one time and they took us to a place where they had artificially created coral reefs with shipwrecks and some other submerged materials, man-made materials. So how do they start growing? If you, you said part animal, part plant. 
Coral needs something solid to hold on to. So when you have a shipwreck or you have a piece of rock, you can take these a section of coral and, and place them onto them. And corals are quite remarkable. They are a bit, a, a little bit like a iguana. If, if, it, if an iguana loses its tail, it regrows it very quickly. A coral, um, when it's cut or it fragments, the segment that remains will actually regrow quite rapidly. So what a lot of scientists are doing is they, after, say, a storm or, or where there's been some form of damage, they will collect up the fragments of those corals. They will bring them back to the lab um, and help to sort of nurture them back into a, you know, a larger size or, or health. And then they will go out and find pieces of solid or rock or whatever down there to attach them on. They will regrow. What we do is we are installing essentially a dome structure in the ocean. Um, that starts off as being made of steel. And then we use a, a process called electrolysis to actually, in a sense, harvest minerals that are, that are naturally found in the seawater to form rock around our, our steel structure. So it effectively becomes covered in a layer of concrete. It's a completely natural concrete. How quickly does this coral grow? Years? Decades? Yeah, corals take decades to grow. It's fairly slow. But the what they've been able to do around the fragmentation of corals is they can get them to grow sort of 20, 20 times faster than normal. And through the electrolytic process that we do, you can get corals to grow sort of three, maybe five times faster. I mean, it depends a little on the, on the coral species and also where they are. So what is your innovation? Our work is around actually creating that bedrock. So we're not about creating corals or growing corals but in particular. We're just trying to create that lump in the water so that when the waves come in, we cause those waves to break before they, they continue further onto the shore. And at the same time, what we're doing is we're providing the foundations on which you can then plant corals um, in warm waters. Uh, in oyster, You might use oysters in colder waters, and there's work we're now doing to experiment with that in um, the Isle of Man. And at the same time, the, the structure provides a fantastic habitat for fish, just like natural coral reefs do. So we're getting all the same benefits, but we're creating a structure that would otherwise take hundreds, if not thousands of years to form in a matter of weeks. In a matter of weeks? Yeah. We would install the structure within a week. Then the rock that we grow on the structure, we'd form over, say, four to six months. Actually, in Japan, there are man-made coral reefs which serve as a habitat for fishes to increase fish yield uh, for the fishermen. It's the same basic principle. I mean, I don't know specifically what they're doing in Japan, but if you can create a structure that is above the sand, because very little will live in the sand. I mean, seagrasses will, but if you put a coral in sand, it just gets lost and smothered. So you want something that lifts it up from the seafloor. So I suspect what the Japanese are doing is, is creating some form of, sort of intricate structures. They can either put the corals onto them, but just but anything will, you know, any form of shelter, any form of sort of intricate network will support fish. What's really quite amazing about this sort of, you know, the whole marine ecosystem, if you think about fish, one of the reasons a lot of corals have died is not because of climate change specifically. It's because they have been smothered in algae. And that's because normally you'd have an abundance of fish that will come in and eat all the algae and keep them, um, um, keep them clean. And 
when they've been overfished or the area's been overfished, you, then there's a knock-on impact onto the corals. Fish also provide an awful lot of nutrients for things like seagrass. So, that, you know, they poop like the rest of us. That settles on the, on the sand and that provides the nutrients for, you know, seagrass to grow. Seagrass, in turn, has been shown to be phenomenal at filtering the water. It helps to remove microplastics. It helps to remove pollution that might otherwise kill the corals. But at the same time, seagrass is also a sort of wonder plant. It's, it's, it's something like 35 to 50 times more effective at removing CO2 than, than the healthy equivalent of the, the Amazon rainforest. I have to say healthy because de-logging and all the rest of it, the rainforest is not performing quite so well at the moment. So you can see this is a whole chain. And what we're doing is trying to get in at the top there and say, like, we'll provide the structure. And then we want to initiate the growth of all of these other things in and around our reef. You know, effectively trying to work totally in harmony with nature. Describe the process. So you build the steel structures, you plant the corals. We would start by company. The first thing we do is gather as much data as we can around about an area. So we would then model very carefully all of the waves, the currents and what's going on. Um, that's then followed through, you know, ultimately ends up with a design for a particular site. And if the client's happy with that, we would then manufacture the steel frames. So they're then placed in the ocean. Into that, we then um, run power, run a small electrical current through the water that causes the electrolysis to happen and causes the rock to grow on the, on the structure. Then after about, probably about four months, if we have a suitable supply of corals, we can actually plant those on. Or as I said earlier, in colder water, we might put oysters. But to be honest, the corals and the oysters are not a, you know, an essential part of what we need to do. They're just what we want to get established onto those structures, and certainly after sort of six months. They then become almost the guardians of that reef, carrying it forward into the future. Does this require maintenance? It will do in the sense that if you have a, a strong storm and, and it causes any damage to the reef, if a, a hurricane comes up and picks up a, a ship and it throws it through our structures, of course they're going to get damaged. So what we can do is we are able to, we're monitoring our reefs 24-7. So we have installations in Mexico, in the Isle of Man at the moment, and in Spain, and all of those we can actually control and monitor from here in London. If we do need to provide any sort of maintenance in terms of the rock that's on those structures, we can. We're less worried about deformation of the actual structure itself. If the steel structure gets hit and bent a little bit, that's actually okay. After all, you know, if you think about normal natural coral reefs, they are a little bit random and varied. So having that variability um, within the structure is actually okay. What we want to do is stop the actual structure rusting until enough rock is formed to actually provide the core strength to that to the reef. What is the typical application? Who would be your customer? Governments, hotel resorts who want to preserve their shoreline? Who is a typical customer for CSAO? All of the above. So we are working with hotels because you know, particularly coastal hotels have a very close correlation between the amount of sand on their beach and what they can charge or even the occupancy rates of their rooms. If you go to a, if you go on a summer holiday and you arrive there and you're expecting a beach and there isn't one, you're going to very quickly write back and say, you know, don't come here. Similarly, you know, our first big project was with co coastal communities. A number of houses came together and we installed our reef in front of them. There they have spent upwards of about a thousand dollars per square meter for their land and you know if they lose a meter in a year and say your property's 
10 meters wide or even 20 meters wide, you've suddenly lost 10, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 pounds or sorry, dollars worth of real estate. I mean, it's literally your money is just washed out the door. They have a, a very vested interest. Governments are genuinely interested in kind of all of it. You know, governments, particularly the local governments, want to promote tourism. Their interests go a little bit more deeper in the sense that they are interested both in terms of maintaining the marine environment or enhancing the marine environment. So they put a lot of attention into you know what's going on with coral reefs and other sort of plant life or the fishing, etc. They also touch base with the fishing communities. In awful a lot of the places we're operating in Mexico have they're not wealthy. So you have long fishing communities all the way along that coastline and they're having to go further and further afield to catch fish. So you know again the governments in Mexico are interested in trying to promote um, um, sort of marine reserves to encourage fish stocks, redevelop fish stocks. How much does this cost? Like, say, for a residential community, their pockets are probably not as deep as governments. Our, our sort of throwing it out there sort of number is $1,000 a metre. But it, it varies wildly depending on what you're doing. So for a very simple installation, it could be as little as, say, seven, 800 all the way up to our, our larger reefs are around about $2,000 a metre. That's US dollars. <laughs> yes, yes. And the break-even point is not too long. In most cases, no. It's The return on client's investment is often within a year. Um, to, to, put a, to give it an example for hotels, you know, we only need to nudge the occupancy rate of a hotel by 1% to 2% and they've paid for our system. Now, in terms of restoring the beach, that could take longer. It's not just because you erect a structure, it doesn't mean to suddenly mean, you know, the following day you're going to have this glorious beach. It will take months, if not years, for the sand to gradually redevelop in front of that property. How do you know that your product is working, that they are restoring the coastlines, the coral reefs are helping us restore the coastlines? From a, an initial perspective, we know that coral reefs work. It's not sort of a questionable thing. We, we know as I mentioned earlier, the Maldives are, they literally would not exist if it wasn't for the coral reefs around them. You know, the, in fact, the coral reefs created the Maldives. The way we know our system's working is, I mean, at an initial level, you know, we can see that the waves are smaller after they've traveled across our structure. And then in the longer term is because we see sand building up um, behind our structures. And then ultimately we see the size of the beach um, building out. So you know, from the work that we've been doing in, in Northern Yucatan with our biggest structures, we're seeing a very small change to the beach line. But what we have seen is quite a dramatic increase in the amount of sand directly behind our, our reefs. And that with time will move towards the shore. How much do you think in the next five years, how many miles of coastline will Cell be able to restore? That's a very good question. I hope within the next couple of years, we will be installing probably about two kilometers a year. We're still an early stage company. And we want to scale that up. We already have expressions of interest for what's about three kilometers in the next two years. Now, of course, not all of that, those projects will come about but other projects hopefully will fill in behind that. That's still a tiny drop in what needs to be done. So we need to ultimately be scaling this business. Um, what I'm now doing is, you know, we're working very hard to look at how we're going to finance the business going forward so that we can really ramp up the scaling and the automation within the organization so that we can start to deploy reefs at a, at a much, much larger rate, you know, so towards the end of Ideally, within about six years, we want to be deploying, I forget the exact numbers, but it's probably about 10 to 15 kilometers a year. In fact, I can tell you that. 
what kind of support do you need to achieve these goals or resources? Like what do you need policy changes or is it just public awareness? What was the, the coastline? Like how much of the coastline do you think? We're hoping next two years, we're expecting to install about two kilometers of reef. And then we're going to start ramping up quite significantly. So by 2025, our intention is to be installing about 15 kilometers of reef per year. And that's still only a small fraction of what we need to be doing globally. So the business as a whole is expecting to take on you know partners so we're, we're in talks with terror army for example which is a huge french um, multinational and we'll be building similar partnerships with other sort of coastal or engineering companies around the world so we can provide the expertise and the support so they can help to you know roll this out what do you tell the people who say that you're interfering with nature that you're playing god <laughs> very good question what would i tell them of course we are we are engineers and we have played God the world over. You know, cities wouldn't exist, sewage systems wouldn't exist, electricity would not exist if it wasn't for engineering. And arguably, through engineering, we have destroyed this planet. So it, it's because we've provided cars and ships and aeroplanes that we have a world that's in the state that it's currently in. You know, and to go to the more grim side, you know, the war in Ukraine wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for the fact that engineers across the centuries have developed weapons um, to facilitate that sort of thing. But what we're hoping to do here at CCEL is, you know, we're hoping to work very closely with the scientific community, particularly around marine biology, to engineer something that, unlike those other things, is actually good for the environment. It is actually working in close connection with the environment we're trying very hard not to introduce any sort of new alien materials into the ocean of course we're making a structure but we're just trying to create a structure that that is formed from the very minerals that corals themselves are formed from as much as we can be in sync with with the marine marine life so in terms of the resources that you need how are you getting funded good question a very timely question we are actually launching a crowdfunding round now so this follows a, a previous crowdfunding that we had two years ago and this is um it's going to be a smaller round but we will then be building into as we move into the following year bringing in various institutions and various funds to drive our business yeah if you want to get involved in this business and you would like to invest in this business we'd love to hear from you at uh and just visit our website so ccell.co.uk and they would be able to find the link to your crowdfunding yeah they can register from there and find our crowdfunding platforms and all of the materials about our, our work with those lofty goals wishing you all the best thank you so much dr bateman for coming on mindful businesses thank you video for inviting me it's been great to have a chat you're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vedya Ayer. We would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note or an email with your questions or comments for our guests to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashricha. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.